Fade in, interior, screenplay podcast, day. They say you have 10 pages to get a reader invested, to get them hooked. That's what we look at on this show. Welcome to the first 10 pages. Today's screenplay, Raiders of the Lost Ark. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. It is protected by forces beyond imagination. of the Lost Ark, a film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. My name's David Ferrier and I'm joined by professional screenwriter Kia Wilkins. Kia, an iconic blockbuster to kick us off. Yeah, absolutely. Probably one of the uh, rare examples of a film where the opening 10 pages are maybe the most... Uh, iconic sequence from the entire film. The movie was written by Lawrence Kasdan of a story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman who and was directed by Steven Spielberg. It was released in 1981, but George Lucas came up with the idea for the adventures of Indiana Smith at first, all the way back in 1973, around the same time he was developing uh, the idea for Star Wars. So really a life-changing period of time for... Um, George Lucas. Yeah, but it, a bit going on. Mm, a little bit. But it wasn't until he was on holiday in 1977 that he brought the idea to Steven Spielberg. And here's how Spielberg puts it. About May in 1977, George Lucas and I were in Hawaii and we were sitting on the beach building a sandcastle. And George began talking about a, a movie serial he wanted to write and produce called Raiders of the Lost Ark. About the adventures of a soldier of fortune, Indiana Jones caught up in a spectacular supernatural treasure hunt. That's right. A legendary film character and franchise came from a couple of buddies hanging out, building a sandcastle. What child activity do you like to do, Kia, to uh, just let your mind run free and develop (laughs) new ideas? Do you like to play with Play-Doh or get your G.I. Joes out, anything like that? I actually do have a huge variety of putty on my desk. Um, It's funny that you say Play-Doh. I am a big um, fidgeter, so I love to play with putty when I'm writing. So when you're just dwelling over a plot point or, you know, what to happen next, you'll just be sticking your finger in a a pot of putty, making (laughs) fart noises. But, but, you know, I have not come up with many multi-million dollar franchises, so I might need to build a few more sandcastles, I think. Perhaps. I do like the idea that they were on holiday together and trying to save a bit of money by sharing a room and arguing <laughs> about the bill. And who's the been original or- odd couple. <laughs> who's been ordering the dirty movies. George, uh, the copy we have is the revised fifth draft dated April 1980. It's 103 pages long, written by Lawrence Kasdan, who, by the way, it's worth mentioning, in a two-year period, he wrote this and The Empire Strikes Back. Here, what a run. Yeah. Is there is there someone who's had a better two-year screenwriting career, like who's just I, hit two major home runs like that? I couldn't tell you, but you'd, I'd imagine you'd be hard-pressed to find someone that's had as much of an impact, uh, not just in the films that came out, but on the actual craft of screenwriting um, as Larry Kasdan. And and you know he was also he was also pumping out these kind of character movies as well like the big chill and the bodyguard so just you know casually in between huge tentpole blockbusters also making these much smaller character driven films has he written a book about screenwriting i know some of the you know the greats have 
Or has he done a masterclass series? Don't know about the masterclass. As far as I know, he's resisted the urge to become um, a screenwriting guru. And to be honest, look, it's probably because he's busy actually writing movies. Uh, A lot of these gurus don't necessarily have long lists of credits. So, you know, he's probably... He's probably busy writing movies, making money, um, doesn't need to write a book on how he does it. He's missing out on that masterclass money. I reckon they pay pretty well. Aaron Sorkin and uh, David Mamet have uh, have done they got masterclasses. They got on board. Steph Curry did one on basketball, which is a hilarious idea, watching videos how to get better at basketball. I didn't know it was that easy. I I'll, I'll watch it. I might actually kickstart my career in the NBA um, after I give that well, a watch. You could make it to the Sydney Kings starting lineup at least. <laughs> Uh, sure. there, is, there, there is a famous transcript of a story meeting which took place uh, between the, the four key creatives, Spielberg, mm. Lucas, Kazdan, and uh, Kaufman. It is a fascinating read because it's evident that George Lucas had a very clear vision for this character and the story, and a lot of what is brought up in that meeting made it almost directly to screen care. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Well worth a read for anyone that's interested, I think, because... It's really interesting to see who contributes what, but as you say, just how many of those ideas are so fully formed and so intentional and down to, you know, even George Lucas's description of the costume really doesn't change from that initial story meeting to to what we see in the film, which is quite remarkable, really. It shows, you know, such a clear intent of, of what he wanted this movie to be. Later in the show, we'll cover off the rest of the screenplay, do some must-mentionables, count the trope tally and ask, would a mobile phone ruin this story? But now the first 10 pages, which in this copy we have, it's actually more like the first 11. Uh, We meet our lead basically right away. I will read the opening little part right now. Fade in. Exterior. Peru. High jungle. Day. The dense, lush rainforests on the eastern slopes of the Andes, the place known as the Eyebrows of the Jungle. Ragged, jutting canyon walls are half-hidden by the thick mists. The main title is followed by this, Peru, 1936. A narrow trail across a green face of the canyon, a group of men make their way along it. At the head of the party is an American, Indiana Jones. He wears a short leather jacket, a flapped holster, and a brimmed felt hat with a weird feather stuck in the band. So we meet um, our hero basically right away. Yeah, he wastes no time getting into it. And um, it's it's interesting, these 10 pages are very light on dialogue and very heavy on big print detail. Like, Larry Kazdan really does not leave much to the imagination. He's a very dense, a very dense writer, I think. Well, um, why do you think that was the uh, approach like what kind of 10 pages is being set up here um well it's a it's a very interesting opening sequence you know we're talking about this serial idea and that each thing is is a kind of self-contained story and that's very much true of these first 10 pages it is just this little adventure that you obviously don't know when you're watching it for the first time that it actually does not pertain at all to the a plot of the overall film uh but what it's doing is a huge amount of heavy lifting um, on the character front, and it's also just setting up a genre and a tone and the rules of the world. Uh, and so I think, you know, he's obviously going hard on on setting the scene so that you do you do get immersed in in what kind of movie you're about to watch, what kind of adventure you're about to go on. Um, and you know, a, a lot of people these days would probably advise 
you to go lighter on big print to say less to leave room for other creatives to come in other heads of department to come in and do their work on the costume and the production design but you know it's a choice and and he writes so well he writes such great detail and such great big print that you know, I think why not let him let him go for it? Would you say he's writing to be to be read rather than writing to be a blueprint? Yeah, that's interesting. It, it's interesting that he, you know, the story was built with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, so it's not that he felt like he had to put exactly what was in his brain onto the page, or else they might not get it because presumably they'd discuss so much of it beforehand. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think maybe you know that's just his his style, and I think. I've I've heard that he, you know, recognises that and has actually sort of pulled back a little bit as his career has progressed, that he looks back on some of those early scripts and was like, yeah, I could have called it a little bit on the on the big print. But, yeah, I certainly didn't mind it here. Uh, in the first few pages, we meet Indy, two Spanish Peruvians named Barranca and Satipo, and five Quechua Indians acting as porters. Besides the fact that he's the only American... How do we know that Indy is the hero in these opening few pages? <laughs> uh, well, I think, you know, that that kind of goes to what is so remarkable about these first 10 pages for me is that, um, you know, we're talking about the gurus a moment ago that all these instructional guides on how you should write a screenplay and this opening 10 pages almost acts like a checklist of all the all the things that you would ideally be setting up and ticking off uh, in the opening 10 pages of any movie. Can, uh, do you have some examples? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we are learning, um, you know, straight away we are, he's painting a picture of someone that is fearless and brave, uh, and not only that, he is just. He is not needlessly violent. So uh, when uh, one of the characters runs away, abandons the mission, and, and one of the other characters pulls a gun ready to shoot him dead, Indy tells him not to, says... You know, we, we don't need him. Don't worry about killing anyone. Let's not shed any blood unless we absolutely have to. So we know he's a noble hero. Um, he's also not concerned with any of the supernatural supernatural things that are going on in this world that all, the, all of the support characters seem to be terrified of. So we understand that he is a man more interested in science and, and man-made uh, perils than a believer in the supernatural. And I think that you know, setting up his core philosophy is really, really smart here because it's actually going to be the thing that pays off right at the end of the film in the climax. Um, we also learn about his special skill, which is his uh, whip, which mm. I think is is a really fun thing to introduce here and you sort of give your character a, a superpower. We're also learning that he is fallible, which I think is really important. We don't, in the first 10 pages, we're not just introduced to a seemingly invincible character. He, you know, he makes a couple of errors. He misjudges the amount of sand in um, when he's swapping out the, the sand for the idol. So we understand that, you know, these adventures are extremely high risk, but he can get it wrong. Um, and then when he jumps in the plane at the very end of this 10 pages... He, we find out that he's terrified of snakes, so he has this sort of Achilles heel, which is another very smart thing to be setting up, and it's sort of done in quite an offhand way that, you know, we don't really think too much about it. That, but, of course, later on he's going to find himself confronted with a pit of snakes because, uh, of course, he is. Yeah, a lot is set up just within 10 pages. Um, yeah, a huge amount of and, character work. And it kicks off. So if we'll go back to 
the opening few. So when we've met the, who, who the team is, there's seven of them. And then over the next few pages, the party approaches the temple of the Chachapoyan warriors. And uh, the tension just continuously is ratcheted up. Everyone except Indy either flees or gets just incredibly nervous. Uh, we also see that Branka and Satipo intend to murder Indy at the right opportunity. And they're also being stalked by the Hativos, uh, an, an unseen band of uh, native warriors. Um, by page four, the seven are down to just two. The porters, they all flee in fear. Baranka pulls a gun on Indy, who this is a, a diversion. It's different from the final film. In the screenplay we read, Indy gets his whip and wraps it around Baranka and around the you know the gun that he's holding and does so in a manner that Baranka is holding the gun to his own chest. And then when he when he gives Baranka the opportunity to put down his weapon, but when he doesn't, he does a little move where he flicks it and Baranka shoots himself. Um, so there's a slight diversion from what they ended up going with in the final film. So then following that, Indian Satipo consult the two halves of the map they have and make their way into the temple. That's where they find booby traps and the decaying body of a rival of Indies, which is a nice detail here to raise the stakes even further because this is someone that uh, that that Indy goes, well, this is Forrester. He was very good. So like even the best at what in the field that Indy is in, even one of the best came unstuck at this moment. And that's how, and yet he is still forging on. Yeah, our hero is just that little bit better than everyone else in the game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Indy and Satipa avoid the traps set for them, all the booby traps, and make their way into the sanctuary. Um, I just want to read the big print from the moment he comes face to face with the idol. It's in one of the iconic images where he comes down, he you know, rubs his hand across his face. Uh, I'll read that for you right now. Indy reaches the altar. The tiny idol looks both fierce and beautiful. It rests on a pedestal of polished stone. Indy looks the whole set over very carefully as he again pulls out his liquor flask and takes a reflective hit. It's another detail, and the screenplay is a bit more of a boozer. Uh, Then, from his jacket, he takes a small canvas drawstring bag. He begins filling it with dirt from around the base of the altar. When he has created a weight that he thinks approximates the weight of the idol, he bounces it a couple of times in his palm, concentrating. It's clear he wants to replace the idol with the bag as smoothly as possible. His hands seem ready to do that once when he stops, takes a breath, and loosens his shoulder muscles. Now he sets himself again and makes the switch. The idol is now in his hand, the bag on the pedestal. For a moment, it sits there. Then, the polished stone beneath the bag drops five inches. This sets off an oral chain reaction of steadily increasing volume as some huge mysterious mechanism rumbles into action deep in the temple. Some great big print. It's so good, and you know, and this is what we're about to see uh, some a great sort of chain reaction and a great you know one of the great escape sequences that you've seen referenced so much in pop culture my my favorite of which would be the the simpsons one so good but running oh, that, well, through the yeah, house yeah. being and chased it, by homer it even plays out like the opening of indian that it has not not it's not literally to do with the rest of the story it is uh just an opening gag um that is fantastic look it up if you haven't watched it in a while certainly if you've never seen it before the simpsons um parody of the uh, opening of of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So taking the idol triggers off the whole place to basically collapse. And then there is, again, another iconic moment running from the boulders. 
which I just want to read the big print for that because, again, it's just fantastic. Indy shoots out of a cut-off hallway and turns towards the exit. The rumbling is very loud, and now we see why. Right behind Indy is a huge boulder coming roaring around the corner of the passage, perfectly form-fitted to the passageway. It obliterates everything before it, sending the stalactites shooting ahead like missiles. Indy dashes for the light of the exit. His hat flies off his head. Almost immediately, it is crushed by the boulder. Indy dives out the end of the passage as the boulder slams to a perfect fit at the entrance, sealing the temple. You can only imagine reading that for the first time, being on the production team or, or, or even being Steven Spielberg, the director, and going, really? <laughs> well, I think actually in the transcripts, if, I, if memory serves correctly, it's Spielberg that comes up with the boulder. Right. I think, uh, you know, he actually, <laughs> it's one of his few good ideas in those transcripts. Uh, a lot of it reads that, you know, George and, and the others are sort of looking at him being like, yeah, cool, thanks, Steve, for the, uh, for the input. <laughs> but, yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll come back to that, Steve. Uh, yeah, let's, let's put a pin in that for, yeah. the, for the moment. I'll write it down anyway. Good. Yeah, thanks for contributing. Yeah, no bad ideas in here, okay. Stephen. Uh, well, before the boulder, of course, I should mention that uh, Satipo uh, betrays him at the pit and makes him give the idol, only to be killed by the same spikes that got uh, Forrester, Indy's rival, uh, and he's chased out by the boulder where he emerges, he having narrowly escaped death. I counted it eight times within these first seven pages. Uh, Indius had his life directly threatened. Eight times. He's a um, pretty so, competent adventurer. Yeah, so after narrowly avoiding death that many times, he comes face to face with his nemesis, Belloc, who is accompanied by several armed Hativos. Belloc is just beautifully set up as the dark side Indiana Jones. It's amazing to to get your antagonist into the story within the first ten pages like this, and and in such a a fun way. He gets that great line. Uh, again, we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. Which you know tells you so much in such a small, in such a you know just one pithy line. We're learning about you know this this long long standing rivalry and that they both are motivated by the same things and you get the very strong impression that these two are going to be going toe-to-toe, chasing after the same thing, whatever this adventure, um, you know, however it unfolds, wherever we go in the world, they are always going to be playing a game of cat and mouse, these two. But Belloc, in little ways, even within this first interaction, he gives away that he is willing to make deals that Indy is not willing to make. Yes, yeah, his moral compass is not as strong as Indy's, for sure. And particularly when, in the screenplay, when the porter runs away and um, Satipo goes to shoot him and and Indy says, we don't need him, let him go. When Indy then runs away from Belloc, the first thing he says is, kill him. So, nice little juxtaposition there. Yeah, lovely little mirror to Indy's uh, noble, no bloodshed unless necessary moment. So Indy runs for it, the Hativos chase him, and uh, he does manage to get away in the seaplane flown by a waiting companion named Jock. As they make their escape, Indy finds a giant python in his his seat uh, and, of course, shouts, I hate snakes. Um, So that's the end of the first ten pages. In the finished film, it's a lot leaner than the script we read, I think, here, but is that because this isn't the shooting script? Uh, possibly, although I don't know that, you know, when it, the shooting script would necessarily be lighter on the page, it is quite an involved uh, opening sequence. 
but yeah, I think just the nature of how you shoot action, you know, paragraphs of text on the page are going to be these very quick, quick shots. And um, but yeah, it definitely does feel leaner. It flies through it when you're when you're watching it. Have you ever written something and then when you've seen the finished product, maybe the director has made some choices that you've thought, why did you why did you do that? Why is why has that played out differently? <clears throat> Particularly with some like big print things. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm struggling to bring a specific example to mind, but it's always going to be different to how you imagined it. Um, there are so many, so many things in motion at all times on a on a film set, and you know, there's schedules and budgets and actors improvising, and and so many things that can change what was written on the page. Um, but you know, that's part of the process. You trust your collaborators, hopefully, and and you you think they were made for good reasons, and if not, you bring it up in the in the edit when it's too late yep (laughs) (laughs) too bad just indulge in some impotent rage and burn some bridges (laughs) so in the opening 10 pages we met indiana satipo uh baranka some native porters belloc the hatovians and jock who on first viewing and reading i thought well he's got a name jock funny he's fishing while indy's running towards him uh jock probably going to be a fun sidekick but no, that was mm-hmm. his one and only moment. Um, did you, like me, Kia, think, oh, whatever happened to the adventures of Jock? I feel like that could be uh, a series unto itself. Yeah, well, I definitely got the impression that he was going to be a returning character. Uh, even even up until the end, you think maybe maybe he, Jock's just going to fly a plane in and rescue them right at the end and yeah. it'll be one of the great callbacks. But no, again, it's that sort of serial thing where this is an entirely self-contained story and, and don't don't worry too much about how it links to everything else. Mm. We're just, you know, we're here for the idol and, and then we're moving on. Okay. We don't meet Marion uh, or some of the other fantastic villains, but we'll talk about them soon. We also don't get the inciting incident, but it does lay the groundwork for when we do, which is in the, in the, in the next scene. Uh, it's laid a lot of groundwork. We know what we're in for. So when you know this mission is brought to Indy, we know what that's going to look like, and it helps get you like invested, interested. Absolutely. Over the next five pages, there's actually quite an enormous exposition dump as they set up the A-plot of the movie. And I think what they've cleverly done by giving giving the audience such an exciting, fun opening, um, you know, 10, 10 to 15 minutes of, of great adventure, great action, is that you've earned some patience in them. They're now willing to sit through a fairly talky scene. Um but the other great thing about how the inciting incident plays out is it's just it's such a stark contrast to the indie we've met to then smash into him in this kind of tweed jacket being mm. an archaeology professor. Um, so that in itself is, you know, more really interesting character work that's going on. You're like, oh, wow, he's living this kind of double life. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, really well handled, I think. Yeah, and his other life is a button-down academic who's making his students horny. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly more sleazy in this version of the screenplay than what we see in the film. He's um, he beds one of the students in this version of the screenplay at mm. some point. Was that also wisely. Spielberg's idea to cut that out? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, don't uh, George Lucas um, seemed to be all for from the from what I can gather from those transcripts, all for indie, you know, being a womanizer. 
they do talk about, they do reference the fact that they were out to kind of make a Bond film without the hardware. So, right. in that sense, you know, making him a womanizer tracks. But yeah, yeah I think we'll, we'll get into it a bit later that um, I don't know that Bond has ever hooked up with a child. Um, <laughs> uh, any issues with the first 10 pages? Um, no, I mean, it's just so, so impressive how many things um, are being set up and so deftly and. You know, as I said, maybe now you would uh, you would sort of prefer to read something a little less dense, um, but it, it's so hard to separate it from the iconic sequence that you know that you see in your mind when you read it. So it's very hard to pick holes. I've picked a few holes. Oh, by all um, means, go ahead. And they're really they're nitpicks. Uh, they're packed for a really long hike, but then when Indy runs away, the plane is just over there. It's really not far away at all. Uh, also, in the screenplay, he has one half of the floor pan plan for the temple and Satipo has the other half. Indy's been hiding mm. it. They get it out and look at it and then just never re- reference it again once they step foot in the temple, which, by the way, besides the booby traps, is just a straight corridor. <laughs> so, yeah, that's very true, actually. The, yeah, the, Unless the floor plan... No, the floor plan doesn't lay out the booby traps because that's part of, you know, I guess setting yeah, up how clever Indy is. Yeah, and he's always, you know, he's always very aware and, and smart in how he tests for the booby traps. So he's not referring to the floor map there. And, yeah, it is it is pretty much a, a straight line mm. through to the idol. Uh, also, I don't really have a problem with this, but the, the I hate snakes thing feels a little tacked on right at the end. Like uh, they had this sure. thing further down the line and went, oh, we need to plant that idea somewhere. Because who carries their pet python on an aeroplane, on an old-fashioned biplane style seaplane thing? Just doesn't. <laughs> Jock does. It's just, uh, well, that, well, yeah, maybe that is what makes him so interesting and why he deserved more screen time. Yeah, this well, that's the that's the spin-off is Jock and his uh, snake Reggie yeah. <laughs> going to these exotic far-flung locations to help uh, uh, tomb raiders. Uh, let's move on to the next ten. So you get them hooked with the first ten pages. So then in this section, in, uh, we we talk about if we could give an additional few pages from the screenplay, which would they be? Uh, let's, you know, let's, let's offer some, uh, contenders here. Okay. Kia, what have you got? I mean, I, I have a particular soft spot for the scene with the poison dates. I mean, it's so silly and over the top, but it sort of, to me, speaks to the tone of the film so perfectly where there's this bowl of poison dates on the table, uh, and Indy keeps going to eat them, but various things get in his way or stop him at the last second. He's just about to put it to his mouth and then, you know, a- an idea comes to him. So he starts talking or he throws it up in the air and tries to catch it in his mouth, but it misses and bounces onto the floor. Meanwhile, this uh, mon- cute monkey character that we've come to be invested in, albeit a Nazi monkey. Nazi monkey. Uh, <laughs> that Nazi monkey. A cheeky Nazi monkey. Uh, he sneakily eats one of the dates and, and carks it, and that's what alerts them to the fact that uh, that the dates have been poisoned. And that that's another little tight enclosed sequence that just feels like a little short film on its own. So I, I do love that, but I would say uh, having, you know, if they've already read the opening 10, maybe that's a bit more of the same. So if you were really trying to show them um, what else the screenplay has to offer. I think you probably can't go past the 
the the final moment when the Ark of the Covenant is opened. I mean, that's okay. pretty special. All right, we will get to that. I want to offer the pages where we meet Marion, one of the all-time great characters. And I will read one of the all-time great characters, one of the all-time great character introductions as well, the drinking competition. There's this chunk of big print. I'm just going to read it for you now. Interior, the Raven Saloon, Patan, Nepal, night. A huge stuffed raven, wings spread wide, is mounted behind the long bar in a noisy, crowded saloon. A lively mix of patrons is represented in the late house tableau. Nepalese natives, fierce Sherpa mountain guides, sleazy international smugglers and fugitives, and of course, mountain climbers from every corner of the earth. A tall Nepalese Mohan is the bartender. Most of this motley bunch has crowded up towards the bar, where some sort of raucous competition is taking place. A muscular and ferocious Australian climber stands in front of the bar. Before him is a row of 15 shot glasses. 13 are empty. He prepares himself and tosses back the 14th. The onlookers react noisily as he slams the glass down with a challenging look across the bar at his opponent, who has until now been hidden from the crowd. Now we see his opponent. Facing him from across the bar, dwarfed by the forest of towering patrons, is Marion Ravenwood. 25 years old, beautiful, if a bit hard-looking. At this moment, she can use any hardness in her. She picks up her 14th shot glass and tosses it down. The crowd reacts much bigger to this. They love her. Between the rows of glasses is a pile of money of wildly varying currencies. The Australian climber focuses on his final glass and picks it up with a steady hand. He smiles at Marion roguishly and drinks. He puts the glass down and narrows his eyes at Marion. Then he falls over like a big tree. No one makes any effort to catch him. They're busy roaring their approval. What a hero. Yeah, it's a pretty great character introduction. That whole, you know, again, another sort of self-enclosed sequence of uh, of her in that bar and in Indy rocking up, and obviously in the film, he's brought in again with the with the shadow. Um, but it's just so fantastic, and she gets such great dialogue throughout that scene, which kind of has this strange old timey feel to it. You know, Indy's like, "You're really something," and she's like, "Yeah, I'm something. I'll tell you what I am. I'm your partner," <laughs> and just <laughs> just gets these really sort of classic, um, I don't know, almost Humphrey Bogart esque dialogue. Also worth noting that the, that character who she's drinking against an Australian climber. No, no. No, no seeming reason why to give him a nationality like that. Uh, yeah, and I suspect that's why it's not evident in the film that that is the case, probably because they were like, well, do we really need to specifically go on a casting hunt to find an Australian who's in LA put that Paul we can... Paul Hogan in this? Do we, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, put a pork hat on, Yeah, as I'm sure that would have been inclined to. Uh, yeah, so great, great piece of big print there. I like the dialogue scene between Belloc and Indy when they're in Egypt, particularly the line, mm. you and I are very much alike. Archaeology is our religion, yet we have both fallen from the pure faith. Our methods have not differed as much as you pretend, but I am but a shadowy reflection of you. It's just really nice, considering we've already met him in that opening 10 pages, to then have this follow-up scene um, where he very clearly has the upper hand. Yeah, no, it's a great scene, and it, and it is such a sort of masterclass in that idea of your antagonist should be the, uh, as you said, the dark side of our hero. Um, it's, you know, it's a little bald, I would say, if you... But 
at the time, maybe, you know, now this is such a, a well understood rule of screenwriting or a, you know, almost a trope um, that, you know, if, if you wrote it that plainly now, I think, you know, people would just be like, let's, uh, let's tone it down a little, but yeah, it, it works here. And, and I think it's, partly about when when it was made and also just about the overall tone of the film being a little bit campy, you kind of get away with it. Something not to forget is that the, the idea of the modern blockbuster only really started around 1977, like with, with Jaws and Star Wars, like the, yeah. the idea of the summer blockbuster. So this falls only a couple of years after that. So, yeah, it is sort of laying the groundwork, like it's establishing its own own rules for things that would then become a bit hack. Yeah, then then twenty um, so called gurus will write books uh, mm. and retrofit these structures of great movies and say, "See, this is these are the rules. This is how you do it." <laughs> uh, but I agree with you. The next ten pages, the next pages would have to be the moment that the arc is opened, which happens on page ninety nine, and it's all underlined. This section of the screenplay is that just for emphasis. Yeah, I think so. It's, you know, it's both an incredible piece of writing in and of itself, this this big print, but it's also, I think, as much as indie has a character arc, this is where it's expressed. It's, uh, as I mentioned before, we meet a man in the opening who is very much, um, you know, the only thing he fears are, are the man-made booby traps, and he's not very superstitious, he's not scared of the supernatural, and, and this is his moment of being like, nope, there is, there is a god, he is vengeful, and I am scared and, I, and I'm and i going to close my eyes so I don't have to look at it. And that's, you know, that's what saves the day in the end. Yeah, it reveals in the end that this is actually a very Christian movie. Um, yeah, God absolutely. exists. Uh, yeah, we might talk about that a little bit later. So here is the piece of big print. Strap yourself in. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is God's reply to evil men. A pillar of fire rockets straight for the sky, turning night to day. In a blinding flash of whiteness, the entire island is ringed by a curtain of pure streaking light. It is like the beginning of time, creation, that perfect moment when light was delivered to the planet. But this light is a weapon, a power so fearsome, a charge so jolting, that it affects physical matter in a way we have never seen. Belloc, in his obsession, takes the full instantaneous blast. His whole body seems lit by a million volt current, and for a moment, his complete form is white, then blue then maybe orange. But it is hard to tell because our eyes are blinded now too. And two things are clear in this ghastly, beautiful display. First, that Belloc, in the instant of his destruction, has experienced some kind of sublime, transcendental knowledge. If a death's head can smile and look satisfied, that's how Belloc's incandescent face would be described. Secondly, this moment is accompanied by a sound like no other, a sound so intense and so odd and so haunting that we might imagine it were the whisper of God. Dietrich and the tall captain and the Nazis around them struggle to turn their heads, to close their eyes, but they cannot. That sound, that light, has them gripped as in a vice. Indy and Marion have their heads bowed and, head and eyes squeezed shut, but now Marion is weakening, giving in to the seducive allure of the ark. As she seems about to look, Indy senses it and yells above the roar of the deafening sound, No, Marion, don't look. Don't open your eyes. The island, the ocean, the sky are all... All are barely distinct in this glare. The starscape has been devoured by the light. And brightest of all, the core of the reactor is that towering pillar of flame, the burning wrath of God. Now we see in a series of flashing shots what happens to those who look. 
Belloc's eyes have disintegrated. The sockets suddenly turn to black holes. Dietrich and his men are all eyeless, but now their skin and bone dissolves before us, not peeling or shattering, but rather crumbling into fine pieces, collapsing on itself. And finally, turning to a fine, dry dust that blows away in the whipping vortex of the arc's storm, the native idol, to whose legs Indian Marion are strapped, cracks and crumbles, falling away into a pile of rock and dust. Indy and Marion, eyes still closed, are suddenly free, and then, as suddenly as it began, it ends. The lid of the ark slams shut. I mean, that is a hell of a piece of big print. That Imagine being the special effects team and getting that and just being like, oh, shit. I mean, it would be so exciting but so intimidating. That is, it paints such a picture. And, I mean, I can imagine in, um, you know, 1981 or whenever it was that that, that is no, no easy thing to achieve. Yeah. How are we going to achieve, uh, it says here, Whole body seems lit by a million volt current, and for a moment, his complete form is white and blue, then maybe orange. Um, have we invented VFX yet? <laughs> uh, computer ones? No? We're going to have to do this practically? Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, crazy. I don't know. They, but this all would have been done in consultation, right? Because there were these key creatives. So Spielberg wouldn't have read this and gone, are you kidding me, Kazdan? Yeah, no, no. Like, I think there would have been a, a broad understanding of what they were going for. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting to think about when you're working in a collaboration like that, which order of which order things came in. You know, I wonder whether they Spielberg started talking about how he was going to achieve things and what he wanted to do, and and then Kazdan wrote to that, or whether yeah. he just gave them this and then went go nuts, see or, what you can or, do, or just checked like how how crazy can I go with this final thing? Because I'm in what I've got in <laughs> mind is pretty crazy. Yeah, um, but whatever it is, they stepped up to it because that the the face melting, that um, again, just another image that you just can't not think about when you think about Raiders. Um, yeah. Speaking of things that you can't um, you can't not think about, uh, let's go to must mentionable. So this is when you talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark, you can't do it without mentioning or giving a shout out to uh, the following must mentionables, Kia. I mean, uh, we we already t- touched on very briefly the Nazi monkey. Great use of uh, a Nazi collaborator animal. Perhaps the only only one. If anyone can give us another example of maybe a Nazi collaborator dolphin or seal or you know dog, um, send it through to us, please. Yeah, apparently it took him a, a long time to to train him to do the Nazi salute. <laughs> so they really they were determined that this this character was going to be in there. <laughs> do it. You can do it. <laughs> I believe you. Well, I think uh, for me, um, must mentionables. Everyone is incompetent to a certain level, particularly the bad guys. Uh, most evident when Indy and Salad conduct their digging operation in full view of the Nazis, the entire camp, and no one seems to notice. <laughs> um, Amazing when you just put on a different costume, how invisible you become. Well, even when when Indy ends up on the little island base, he's just wearing a Nazi uniform. He literally bumps into Belloc, and Belloc doesn't notice. Uh, (laughs) For a movie about an archaeologist, not a lot of archaeology. I think in the finished film, Indy picks up a little brush and does some dusting once in the map room. Uh, He doesn't pick up a shovel until around page 60, and I mean, just... to be fair, though, archaeology, not the most cinematic of professions. Mm. 
you know, how much of it did we really want to see? Yeah, true, true. And he does say that he, in his real life, he's a archaeologist. This is more of his um, soldier of fortune uh, stuff that he does on the side. The crazy capers. Okay, must mention a lot of people. You know, it's it's. There's been coverage of it, but you just can't not talk about this movie and talk about that India's a creep, uh, and that in the opening scene with Marion. We are brought in on the fact that he hooked up with her 10 years ago. In the screenplay, she's 25. So when she was 15 and the dialogue goes uh, between Marion and Indiana, I've learned to hate you these last 10 years. I never meant to hurt you. I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong and you knew it. You knew what you were doing. Now I do. This is my place. Get out. So that hasn't aged well at all. No, I, I don't think it, it was okay at the time. I mean, that's that's not Indy being a creep. That's statutory rape. That's, uh, well, yeah. It's, it's um, yeah, 100% not okay. I'm surprised that that made it to the screen, to be honest. And there, there is there is in the, in the story um, conference that George Lucas was petitioning to make him even, to make Marion even younger because uh, he thought it was interesting. Uh. Which I'd love to unpack what interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, George, that might be one to keep to yourself. Mate. I don't know. Well, we've already mentioned this. God definitely exists and is vengeful. And this is a very pro-homework movie. Because the only reason Indy survives is because he's done more research than the bad guys. He doesn't... There's no physical achievement to overcome things right at the very end. There's no choice that has to be made other than shut your eyes. And the only reason he knows that is because he did his homework. Your yeah. thoughts? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely right. It's, um, you know, it's not some great uh, adventure sequence where he swings through in a rope and saves the day with brute strength. It's, um, you know, it is his understanding of of his profession and, of, and his respect of, I guess, um, great artifacts great mm. antiquities that uh, that saves the day in the end and and as i said before that sort of his journey through the film is to is to believe in the power of these things mm. it's a soft arc but yeah it's there the trope tally for the first 10 pages any that you spotted in raiders well you know as we've as we've been saying uh, so many things that now if you, if you saw them now things from these first 10 pages you might identify them as tropes i just don't feel like you can fairly call them tropes in this context because they probably invented the the cliche they were the first to do so many things um so yeah i you know i I don't think there are any tropes in those first 10 pages necessarily great and finally would a mobile phone ruin this story Uh, i certainly would have changed the way things unfolded um you know he he a lot of the information exchange would have been a lot quicker a lot of the international travel would have been a lot quicker but yeah. <laughs> you know i think it probably plays out relatively similarly well yeah cuz they they're searching for this lost artifact and i don't know what the uh, what the the service is like in nepal but i suspect that marion has gone off the grid and if she does have an emergency backup phone, she's probably not getting great service. So he would still need to go and track her down. And, um, you know, you can't Google the location of the Ark of the Covenant. It would still require some digging. But I don't <laughs> think it would. Um, yeah, it's certainly not, not as much as many of the films from that era. Yeah. I think it, you know, holds up okay. 
All right, Kia, we did it. Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first 10 pages, episode one. Uh, next time, we will be joined by comedian and satirist Mark Humphreys to talk about the film Bowfinger. Can't wait for that. That's uh, going to be great. Find us online and send us some suggestions for screenplays, comments, inquiries, whatever it is. Kia Wilkins, thank you so much. Thank you. I've been David Ferrier. We'll see you next time. Fade to black. The end.